0: Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug and 7-gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to our first episode of 2023. We are super excited to be back after a lovely Christmas and a New Year break. I'm Georgie Rack and the host of P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. As always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, the one and only Owen Bryant. So, Ro, how was your Christmas and New Year?
1: Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Um, I almost felt like there was going to be a fanfare um, <laughs> there. Yeah, it was it was marvellous, and it, it seemed to go on forever, actually. So by the time January rolled around, I was really, really ready to come back to work. How about yourself? How was your Christmas?
0: Well, it's the complete opposite for me. I, I worked right up until the end, pretty much, and uh, I felt like I needed another two-week holiday when I came back. It was uh, so busy the first few weeks of January. Um, but yeah, Christmas was lovely, very quiet and peaceful, just chilled with the, with the family, lots of alcohol, lots of food. Um, and just had a nice time. But it's, it's good to be back and it's great to be back hosting another podcast. It's been a while since we've done one. So I, I hope you're all excited for our episode today. So the theme today is trends to look out for in 2023. And the P4A team have handpicked their own trends pieces. We won't be covering all of them today. We just don't have the time and we want to keep you, our audience entertained, but also provide some value and key trends that you need to be aware of this year.
1: Before we go into detail, I'd like to introduce our special guest joining us today. Now, we've tried to get him on the podcast a few times recently, um, so we're delighted he's joining us for today's discussion. Now, we've followed him relentlessly for years on LinkedIn, and his knowledge and experience provides so much value, not only to us, but to the farmer industry on a whole. Um, He's worked in industry for over 20 years, starting at Decision Resources as a researcher in 1997, leaving as Vice President of Global Market Access Insights in 2013. Currently, he is an independent market access consultant, has been doing this for the last eight years. So without further ado, and get those panpipes and the fanfare ready, I would like to introduce you to the one and only Neil Grubert. Neil, welcome to the podcast. I hope I did you justice in that introduction.
0: I feel like we need.
2: I feel like we need a clap there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can live up to that that hype, Owen. But thank you very much for the, that wonderful intro. Thank,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure for you to join us, and actually, for this for this podcast, our trends for 2023, an extremely important podcast. I think we've got some really exciting things to be discussing uh, today. So, yeah, looking forward to getting this discussion started. And thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
0: And we've not only got Neil, guys, we've got a real treat for you today. We are joined by a couple of amazing p 4 As. So we have with us Srishti Gupta and Jody Lyons. Srishti's recently joined the P4A family as a senior consultant, and this is her first time on a podcast, and the same for Jody. Jody joined the team as an analyst back in October last year, and again, has never been on a podcast before. So don't worry, ladies, we've got your back. We will look after you and help you through, but really excited to have you both of us today. Thank you all. Great to be here. I'm going to hand over to Obi to kick off the quick fire round before we get stuck into the trends to look out for in 2023.
1: Over to you, Obi. Thanks, Georgie. If you've listened to our podcast, you'll know that I uh, I like to indulge in some either or questions just to give you a flavour of our guests and what their personality might be like a little bit. And usually I would say ladies first, but as Neil is our distinguished guest, Neil, I'd like to start with you, if that's okay. No pressure on these questions, just a bit of fun. Um, But we always ask the same question to all of our guests. Are you a town or are you a countryside person? Countryside, I'd say. And if I was to say the 1980s or the 1990s, what would you say you preferred? Definitely the 1980s, I'm (laughs) so old. Great answer, me too. Um,
2: Modern or rustic? Rustic.
1: And are you a trainer man or a shoe man? Shoe. Um, Do you like cooking or would you rather be cooked for? Cooked for. Okay, and and always ended on a difficult one, robots or dinosaurs? Robots. Okay, I say difficult, it was random really, but beautifully answered, Neil. Straight away in there, thank you very, very much. Okay, let's go on to Jodie. Jodie, you've um, been putting together the trends piece for us, so just great work on that. Thank you so much. And also just to introduce you, you're a bit of a swimmer. I am. So really, the first question has got to be, are you a town or countryside person? I would say I'm a town person. And then following on from that, the swimming, do you like to swim in a pool or would you like prefer to swim in the sea? Oh, I'm a bit scared of sharks. So in a pool. OK. Um, tomato sauce or mayonnaise? Oh, tomato sauce. Netflix or Disney Plus? Netflix. OK, stra- that was a strong <laughs> one. <laughs> By the way, what's your favourite show on Netflix? You got a favourite one or...? Um, I would say Dexter, my favourite series. Fantastic. We went a bit off script there. Okay, Okay, what about, would you rather never be stuck in traffic again or never have another cold?
3: Definitely never have another cold. I don't even drive, so.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. That was an easy (laughs) one. It's supposed to be a hard one. And okay, all right, here's the hard one. Do you prefer Christmas or birthdays? Birthdays. Okay, thank you very much, Jody. Thank you. Um, and finally, last but not least, Srishti, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Obi. Right, now, again, are you a town or countryside lady? Town. Ah, another townie. And um, I understand you're a bit of a Harry Potter buff. So I was thinking what Harry Potter So I thought, <laughs> here's, here's one, here's a difficult one. Are you a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw if you had to be one of the two?
4: Ravenclaw.
1: Okay. Um, waking up early or staying up late?
4: Waking up early. I have a son.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's scrap that one, shall we? We're edit that one out. Um, loading <laughs> the dishwasher or unloading the dishwasher?
4: Unloading the dishwasher.
1: Well, and that includes putting away as well.
4: Yeah, that's all okay, okay. okay.
1: right. <laughs> that's all okay. I mean. right. <laughs> <laughs> you can come and live with me if you like. <laughs> um, classic one, coffee or tea? Mm, that's, that's difficult. Can I say both? No, oh. absolutely not. Tea. You thought we were going to fall out for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, you know, going back to the sort of 90s, um, would you prefer a date with Brad Pitt or George Clooney?
4: Oh, definitely, George Clooney. I'm sold. Can I still get a date with him?
1: Absolutely. Can you yeah, listen yeah. to
4: this podcast, please? Can we post it on his profiles?
1: We, we can see what we can do. Georgie, <laughs> that's the sort of thing you're you're good at.
4: Absolutely. We can definitely do that, Shitty.
0: I'm going to say Brad Pitt. So uh, we might have to put them on both of this.
1: <laughs> Thank you for indulging me with those questions. Brilliant answers. But let's get into our trends discussion. I'm really excited to listen to some of this intel and, and what you've got to say.
0: Thanks so much, Erin. That was amazing. I really, really enjoyed listening to that. And feel like I know you guys a little bit better. So, the moment we've all been waiting for. Let's kick off our podcast. I'm going to hand you over to my esteemed colleague, Jodie, who will set the scene and tell you the topics that we will be discussing today. Over to you, Jodie.
3: Thanks, Georgie. Hello, everyone. So excited to have you with us today, Neil, and to cover all the exciting topics that we forecast for 2023. The first of which is EU pharmaceutical strategy and the implications of this strategy on market exclusivity for drugs in the EU. This is a key topic picked by Niels. It'll be really interesting to hear his thoughts on this. We'll also be covering key changes to all medicinal product legislation in 2023 and what the effect of this could be on incentivising market competitiveness as well as budget concerns that they might bring. In keeping with this major EU change, the pharmaceutical industry is also preparing for a two-year countdown towards joint EU HTA harmonisation, and we'll be discussing what manufacturers may need to do in order to prepare for this into 2023 and beyond. Last but certainly not least, we'll be looking at expansion of hospital exemption and academic car T-cells across the EU in 2023. So without further ado, I'll pass on to Strishti and Neil, who will be kicking off our first topic on EU Pharmaceutical Strategy.
4: Thank you, Jody, for summarising all the topics that we will be discussing today. Um, and hi, Neil. Um, before we start discussing, let's just go back into the root cause of what led to the discussion of all of the topics that we look up for 2023. The very famous EU Pharmaceutical Strategy that was published back in November, 2020
2: uh sure Shristi. I, I, I think the eu pharmaceutical strategy is is really going to to be a, a milestone for the the industry in 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 europe um probably the the biggest um package of reforms we've seen in in many years decades um, arguably it's going to be a combination of both legislative and non-legislative measures um dozens in 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 total uh, the and and they Go beyond market access, but I've tended to focus in, in my analysis, pretty much on on market access in the in the broadest sense. So I, I think uh, the overarching ambition is to improve access, affordability, and sustainability of the the pharmaceutical system in in Europe. There are certain disease areas that have been identified as priorities. So as we might expect, oncology is is one of them. Uh, Rare diseases certainly I think will be a major focus of the EU pharmaceutical strategy. And I think um, tackling antimicrobial resistance is is also something that's considered to to be uh, a matter of real urgency for for reasons that I'm sure we are all uh, aware of. Um, I think there's a desire to improve competitiveness as the European Commission sees it within the pharmaceutical market to to try to support innovation. And that includes supporting um, the research-based pharmaceutical industry in Europe, but also to promote sustainability um, in the broadest sense. So making uh, the pharmaceutical industry more environmentally friendly, um, but I think also supporting the sustainability of healthcare systems. So that, of course, links back to um, issues
1: around uh, affordability. Neil, you alluded to COVID as a learning uh, outcome, but was COVID a catalyst for the document's creation?
2: Um, I think this had its genesis before the, the pandemic, but I, I think its its final shape was will certainly be heavily influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic and, better preparedness for future pandemics and other um, cross-border health crises will, will be an important element of the the eu pharmaceutical strategy and i think the, the final m- main theme is um, ensuring that the eu continues to have a, a strong voice um, at a global level in in the pharmaceutical industry so within those, or those broad areas, uh, I, I think there are, we can expect to see you know, many different policies that will be adopted to, to try to, to serve those, those ends. Some of them I think can um, be classified under the sort of broad heading of, of drug development. So um, providing parallel scientific advice on, on trial design, um, supporting innovative trial designs, um accelerating marketing authorization there are others that would come under the the broad heading of, of hta and, and pricing and procurement so one of the uh, the themes that we're going to explore um a little later is is pan-european hta uh, but also the potential for for joint procurement um, of a, a range of, of products and supporting cross-border collaboration and then the, the final area i'd identify is sort of what we could call market dynamics. Um, So potentially making changes to incentives for for orphan and paediatric medicines, tackling inequalities in in access across the the EU, and uh, delays in in access um, in in some markets, uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, the important initiative of the European health data space. So I think those are are some of the main features that we can expect to to see in the, the EU pharmaceutical strategy. When it's published, we, we were expecting that to, to have happened by, by now um, in the fourth quarter of last year. It now looks as though that, that will happen um, towards the end of the first quarter of this year or possibly even early in the second quarter.
4: What do you think, Neil, about uh, how the pharmaceutical strategy is going to address the affordability of medicines for patients is and addressing unmet medical need? What are the challenges associated with implementing that?
2: I think affordability—it's—it's it's really interesting because this is an area that historically has been largely avoided by the the EU. I I, I think for fairly obvious reasons, um, m- member states pay for for healthcare, and the EU has tended to to avoid encroaching on on that territory. To, really, to to feel that it's it's largely ah uh, the preserve of member state governments or in some cases regional governments uh w- within those those member states. Um, but I, I think there is a growing feeling that new drugs are in, in many cases are unaffordable for um for some member states, particularly central and central and eastern European countries. Um, and I, and again I, I think this is another instance where the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has probably thrown this whole issue into to sharper Focus. Um, so I, I I think they now feel that um, there's a case for um, for strengthening the the EU framework um, to to ensure affordability of of, of drugs. Although ultimately I, I think they they continue to respect the the principle that it will be down to member states to um, negotiate pricing and and reimbursement. That being said, I mean they're talking about joint procurement. Um, potentially for a wide range of products so that does raise some interesting questions about how you'll achieve that in a meaningful way while still respecting the the prerogative of of member states to to make those determinations
1: it sounds like a a tricky balancing act that neil
2: i i think it is uh, and i i think you know we're going to have to wait and 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 see what the the final proposals are when they they come out in the the coming months um, i'm not entirely sure from what i've i've been picking up over the the last few few months that they've necessarily thought through the 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 logic of, of some of those policies to its sort of final con- conclusion um, so i think we'll we'll have to 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 see you know just what shape that that takes ultimately and indeed for that matter uh, you know how willing Individual countries will be to forego some of their their powers and 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 really support some of these initiatives. And again, that's that's an issue that I, I think we'll probably return to in the the context of joint HTA, um, particularly some of the the larger uh, markets um, and on the HTA front, ones that have well established HTA systems. Um, I I think there's a probably a reluctance to um, or go there their approaches and, and to, to pool um, approaches. I think that's that's one of the fundamental challenges I, I'd suggest.
4: I was going to uh, also mention this, Neil, that the two common topics that you discussed on the affordability issues, tackling that, and uh, the joint procurement of medicines, that's also being looked under the orphan medicinal product legislation updates which is uh, which is happening as a result of the pharmaceutical strategy so um, we would also like to get your opinion on uh, what do you think about the changes that are going to be made in this legislation
2: yeah again we we don't know the final form but I think we've had some indications I mean there's certainly a a suggestion um, late last year that Um, that the European Commission was in in favour of making changes to uh, market exclusivity terms. And I think that would probably have particular relevance um, in the the orphan drug space. Um, I think overall, the the feeling um, is that the orphan regulation and the the paediatric regulation, for that matter, have been effective. Um, in in boosting the the number of of, of orphan drugs and, and pediatric drugs on the the market, um, in some respects the perception seems to to be that they've almost been too effective in 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 some cases, prompting the the industry to to focus um, its efforts very much in in these areas. Uh, and I think one of the the concerns. Um, relates to what's perceived to be indication stacking so orphan drugs that may be approved for multiple indications so i I think potentially we'll see some some measures to to rein in some of the concessions and incentives that are are granted in um in those circumstances Um, i i think it's going to be really interesting to to see just how much emphasis is placed on unmet clinical need or Perceived unmet clinical need and how um, that should be tackled. I, I know there have been suggestions that ninety-five percent of rare diseases um, do not have any available therapies, or you know, possibly even drugs in in development. So the EU would like to to see more activity across the the spectrum of these diseases. And the the logic that that seems to be applied to that is well, once you have A treatment available for a rare disease then move on and focus on another rare disease um perhaps failing to to recognize the value that can come from having multiple drugs or an indication and indeed perhaps failing to recognize the incremental nature of 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 innovation within the the pharmaceutical industry so I, i i think there's a a good chance we'll see more focus on on trying to to steer drug development um, towards perceived unmet medical need, um, in terms of the levers that they have available to to them, I think um, EU funding may well be targeted um, in in those areas. Um, so I think more more broadly, you know, we we'll we, we can expect to to see that There's this greater emphasis on on unmet clinical need. Um, I think some of the other p- potential change that could come would would be in in the sort of criteria for defining orphan drugs, um, possibly in the um the, the prevalence criterion, some some adjustments to 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 that, or um, making changes um, to to market exclusivity terms if you um, if you have multiple indications or or indeed, Possibly linking um, market exclusivity to um, expected profitability um, or or level of R and D um, investment. Um, yeah, so I think those are some of the the, the changes that that we we could see um, in in an update to the the
1: orphan regulation. Just a few things to consider there, then Neil. Um, what type of reforms would you envisage happening in light of the OMP legislation?
2: so i i i think potentially changes to the 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 prevalence criterion um that you know adjusting that um downwards um so that uh, you know you'd you have fewer orphan indications um i think that there is every indication that we'll see changes to to exclusivity terms for for orphan drugs um so to to try to avoid this this situation where um, drugs are perceived to to be excessively re- rewarded for for orphan um status. Um, I think possibly uh, there there could be uh, the introduction of of launch obligations for for orphan drugs. um and, and I think more broadly, you know the, the eu would like to to pursue that agenda um, of of getting companies to to launch across the eu within two years of marketing authorization um, and the industry i think has has tried to take preemptive action on on that we've certainly seen that from from fpa in, in terms of of voluntarily committing to 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 launch um across the the eu within two years of marketing authorization You're subject to the, the sort of cooperation of, of member states. And, and, and that in itself raises some some really uh, interesting questions about just how that would be measured in, in practice. Um, you know, to what extent are those delays down to, to companies um, dragging their feet? Or um, to what extent is, is that down to the the HTA or, and, and pricing and reimbursement systems within member states um, you know, delaying that that whole process.
4: Of course. Um, so um, we talked about the orphan medicinal products, so uh, orphan drugs, which will soon, from 2025, will be going the joint as a HTA assessments in the EU. Uh, Neil, we know that this is an evolving phase, the EU HTA regulation, uh, but what do you think? Is it evolving in the right direction? Uh, what are the changes that have been made on it so far?
2: yeah I, I think there were high hopes for for joint hTA. Um, this was was something that the was close to the the European Commission's heart, and I think it had quite ambitious plans for for reform. I think it those collided with reality um two or three years uh, ago. um it proved Im- impossible to uh, reach a consensus uh, um, among all. EU member states on on that vision of, of joint HTA. So we we had a, a stalemate for a, a couple of years. Probably there were a, a number of of, of countries. Um, I think it's it's generally agreed, led in particular by by Germany and, and France, that had real reservations um, about the original proposals for joint HTA. And I think that reflects their degree of satisfaction with, with their established HTA systems and a, a reluctance to uh, a, abandon those in, in favour of, of a common approach. So really, the only way they were able to to break that logjam was by, I think, by diluting the, the proposals. So what we see is um, it's fairly narrow in its its scope. Um, it's Restricted to the the four core um, clinical domains of the the UNETA model, um, so completely ex- excludes um, other dimensions. Uh, notably, you know all of the economic dimensions, which are, are are ultimately you know so important in most cases to to HTA um, outputs. Um, so very narrow in its scope. Um, and um, quite a few, what could be called loopholes, provisions for um, for member states to to sidestep some of those requirements, because in 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 theory, there's an obligate, there will be an obligation on all member states to to make use of of joint clinical assessments, which are at the heart of of, of EU joint HTA, and to demonstrate that um, how they have used the. The joint clinical assessment reports in their their national or, or regional um, evaluations of of new drugs but um if uh they want to to start their hda process before that joint report is is available or um if it doesn't meet their their needs or they need to do additional analyses then they have the scope to to do that so so really the industry's concern um is is that Instead of reducing the the workload, it it could potentially increase the workload because they'll have to to go through the the joint clinical assessment process um, and and then still you know go through exactly the, the the same processes at national level that they are at 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 present. Um, so that's the the concern. And beyond that, in terms of how it's shaping up in in practice with the um, the the early um deliverables from from UNETA 21 there's, there certainly seems to be a feeling from the the industry that um what we're seeing is not a streamlining of the the approach um but really it's an amalgamation of national processes um so that's a, a major m- concern from the, the industry's point of view but in addition to, to that, there's a feeling that there's been a, a failure really to involve um, the, the industry in, in this process in, uh, as it's happening at present uh, in def- developing the, the, the methods and, and procedures and also a concern about just how active a role companies will be able to play once this is um, up and, and, and running um, in, in terms of, of individual um, joint clinical assessments, how involved will they, they be, how, how much will they be able to contribute. To those joint clinical assessments.
4: Neil, in your expert opinion, uh, what recommendations would you give the pharmaceutical companies on these joint clinical assessments, given that there is so much uncertainty, it could potentially increase the workload, how should they prepare and navigate this environment?
2: Well, I mean, collectively, I think the industry is is trying to to make its voice heard and, 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 and call for a um, you know, a, a pause, almost uh, and, and a and uh, a, a reassessment, because it, it's concerned about the the direction the the process is is taking. I to to be frank, I'm not sure how how much chance there is of of changing that it's at this stage, given the degree of resistance there there has been from from some member states to to making concessions. Um, I, I wonder if they'll they'll be willing to do that at 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 this stage, and, and, and given that we're now less than 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 two years away from from implementation, that that seems un, unlikely. When you, you take account of how much preparatory work they will need to do be, to be even once um, the the methods and procedures have been been finalised, you know, they're going to have to prepare for, for adoption of those at at, at national um, level. So I I, I don't know realistically how much chance there is of of, of a fundamental um rethink at, at this stage um so i think it's going to be critical to 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 keep up to to date with the the outputs of uneta 21 really to un, understand the the different elements and what they will mean in in practice and 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 really you know if if you have um n- new drugs in the target categories um, coming to market in in 2025 um, you need to be thinking now or, or really yesterday about about what you're going to 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 need to do for those those joint clinical um assessments um, and 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 really what adjustments you're going to, to need to make to be prepared for that 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 common approach
4: uh, i've been sidetracked to having our conversation and um and I just got more involved into the risks and challenges, challenges which are coming up for cell and gene therapy manufacturers. They're going to be going uh, joint clinical assessments in 2025. Um, there's a lot of discussion that we've already had on some, uh, cross-border collaboration, and and on top of it, there is risk for the in-house cell and gene therapies being developed. So, um, what what would your thoughts be on the Expansion of hospital exemptions onto CAR T's and upcoming uh, upcoming ATMPs.
2: I think it's interesting what we've been seeing in in, in terms of activity and uh, in in hospital exemption and and what what could be described as as academic um, you know CAR T cell therapies. Um, we're, we're seeing these initiatives in in countries uh, um, are around um, Europe. Um, I, I, I think Spain has has been particularly active in 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 this front uh, in a number of centres, but especially in in Catalonia. Um, and um, you know we've we, we've had the example of the the, the first um, drug that was developed by down that route and received um, marketing authorisation in in Spain, and has 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 since been been granted um, prime status by the European. Medicines Agency, and and I think more more generally, there there seems to to be a um, a will on the part of the European Medicines Agency to support some of these initiatives. So I I, I think they they have um, made a a commitment to to support um, I think a, a pilot around five of these these projects. Um, we're seeing activity in, in other countries. I think the Netherlands is, is, a, is another example uh, of, a, of a country where there's a, a fair amount of, of activity in this area, but, but also we've seen it in Italy uh, with the, the government actually giving its backing to some of those in, initiatives there, um, in Switzerland and in Germany as as well. So I think what's also interesting is just to 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 consider the type of, of backing um, that there is for some of these initiatives. In some cases, it's coming from from, from government in in some cases it's it's coming from um, from uh, from private health in, insurers uh, providing funding in, in some cases it's from 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 citizens, you know almost uh, I think elements of, of crowdfunding for for some of these initiatives and and the sums involved are, are, are you know are pretty modest by the the, the budgets of of the big pharmaceutical, Industry um, and you know they seem to be achieving some results. I, I wouldn't want to overstate that. And I, I think the really interesting question is, is how some of these initiatives will fit al- alongside um, drug development from the the biopharma industry. Um, are they competitive or are they complementary? And is there a role for for pharma to to work more closely? Um, with with some of these projects um that that certainly seems to to be the desire of uh the Italian government i mean they've tried to to encourage farmer to 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 lend their support to some of these these projects so i think it's an interesting area uh, to my my knowledge there's there's sort of been um limited response to to date from the the industry but but given all that we're we're hearing um uh, around the issue of affordability and pricing pressures. And, of course, that's one of the, the, the fundamental um, appeals of this approach from the healthcare system or payer perspective, that um, they substantially undercut um, commercial um, cell therapies um, by you know, two-thirds or or more in, 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 in some cases. Um, beyond that, I, I think... The perception is that there are there are other advantages to to this kind of of local ac- activity um, from the patient's per- perspective. Um, there, there can be certain advantages in in terms of the flexibility to adjust dosing, um, you know, managing side side effects, um, and it, it's, it's, and it's just the speed of the the whole process. If if you can do that locally rather than than you know than having uh, materials traveling. thousands of miles across borders
0: so you mentioned earlier Neil um are they kind of complementary or or are they competitors and I actually just wanted to ask do you see this as an alternative is this an alternative way for for patients to to access medicines or is it just a bridge are they just bridging the gap for waiting for for pharma to to catch up
2: I I think it is going to be interesting see I this is this is still happening at a a, a relatively limited level I would would say at at present, um, and you know, I I, I don't think they clearly don't have the the, the resources that the, the the pharmaceutical industry can can bring to 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 bear. So I, I you know I I I don't really see them displacing pharma. I I, I think what's going to be interesting in the coming years is to to see what kind of accommodation they they reach, and and it's perhaps beholden on on, on pharma to to think about. How how best to to respond and and you know what opportunities there 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 are for a, for a more collaborative uh, um, approach.
0: I suppose it, it. I'm just thinking that it would help with with upscaling the the, the manufacturing of, of those hospital um, exemptions or cartes. Uh, so it so it, it's really in their benefit, isn't it? Just really start to to look at, at what hospitals are doing, and and maybe join with them rather than go against.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, more more generally, we're 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 going to to see um, a, a trend um, for the majority of diseases to to be treated um, out in the community. So care will increasingly be pushed out from hospitals into the, the community, closer to patients for for common chronic diseases. Uh, whereas for um, rare and, and more particularly ultra rare diseases. Um, we're, we're going to see treatment concentrated in centres of, of excellence. Um, they may be regional. Um, for ultra-rare diseases, they they may be we, we may be talking in terms of very, very limited number of of centres of excellence in, in Europe. So some countries, especially smaller ones, you know, won't have a centre of, of excellence. So you'll you'll have patients traveling across borders um to receive treatment, which um in itself introduces new new challenges in 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 terms of, of funding and reimbursement and the, the long term management of of patients so i i, I think the eu is going to have to to come to terms with 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 some of those challenges particularly as we we see growth in the, the number of, of of atmps in the 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 years uh um, ahead so i think we will be looking at at a number, you know, a limited number of of, of those centres of excellence, those hospitals that will be uh, be chosen um, for for that activity, whether they're doing that under their their own steam or you know in in um, in partnership with the the pharmaceutical industry.
4: Neil, you know how there are a number of companies who are going to be soon launching ATMPs, gene therapies, cell therapies, in areas. Which, do not, which are not rare anymore. So the prevalence of those diseases are very big. Do you think there's an opportunity for a manufacturer of a ATMP um, when the disease is not rare to collaborate with these in-house uh, gene, cell, and gene therapy, cell and gene therapies to boost the manufacturing and delivering facility, not just to, the centers of ex- excellences, but also expanding that further to gain access to their own products and are really making an environment for ATMPs in the future, because I'm looking at it from a different angle. So there's clearly a need for collaboration of uh, these um, in-house brewed CGTs and pharma, but who's gonna benefit the most out of these collaborations
2: and how? it's a good question i mean i, I think there are there are any number of of, of questions uh, uh, around the the potential impact and the the, the challenges of 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 atmp's for or more more common um disorders you know just the logistics of administering them but also the 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 economics um, you know how how we're uh, we going to make that that work and i i, I don't think we've really had to confront those issues uh, up until now, but I, I think we may well have to in the in the near future, whether that's in 2023 or you know, a little bit farther down the, 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 the line. Um, so I think that's, that's going to be um, fascinating to see how that, that plays out. Uh,
4: On that note, Neil, let's revisit this topic for our next trends for 2024.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
3: That concludes the end of our 2023 trends discussion. It's been a really insightful chat, and I think what we can take from this is the broad and ever-changing scope of the pharmaceutical industry. We've discussed orphan medicinal product legislation changes and how manufacturers may face reduction orphan drug privileges. This is a especially pressing trend for 2023, considering we've recently seen the drug YesCarta losing orphan drug privileges in Germany and having to undergo a full HTA. So it'll be really interesting to see how this affects manufacturers and their ability to launch in Germany. Along with this, we've discussed drug affordability shifts and perhaps reluctancy to adopt the EU joint HTA harmonisation coming into effect in 2025. What's clear is that we'll need to keep a close eye on these trends, and we'll be sure to do this throughout twenty twenty three and beyond. Via our podcasts, and of course, LinkedIn, where we'll be updating you on our predictions covered today and in our upcoming white paper.
0: Well, that's a wrap. A big thank you to my guests today, Neil Grubert, Trisha Gupta, and Jody Lyons, alongside my co-host Ob One Owen Bryant. As Jodie mentioned, we have released a Trends of 2023 white paper, and that will go into further detail and also has additional trends that were not covered in today's podcast. Next month will be our Rare Disease Day special, and we will be joined by Genetic Alliance UK and a couple of patients or caregivers to share their challenges of living with a rare or ultra rare disease. This is one not to miss, guys. Finally, remember to follow our company page on LinkedIn and also our hashtag P4A Insights. This will help you stay up to date with the latest news and what that means for you. Finally, remember to follow our company page on LinkedIn and also the hashtag P4A Insights. This will help you stay up to date with our latest news and what that means for you. As always, we will be providing value by giving our own opinions and guiding our clients navigating the challenging arena of launching an orphan drug cell or gene therapy.
4: Thank you for listening and see you next month.